lecture is Never Again, Israel, the U.S., and the Iranian Nuclear Program. Uh, an important issue. And there's nobody, I think, better to discuss this issue and, and um, examine this issue than Chuck Freelach. Chuck Freelach was the Deputy National Security Advisor in Israel. He is now a senior fellow, fellow at the Belfer Center at Harvard University's Kennedy School of Government. He's the author of the first book of its kind on Israel's national security decision-making processes. The title of the book is Zionism's Dilemma, How Israel Makes National Security Policy. And it was published by Cornell University Press in 2012. The book was awarded the 2014 Annual Book Prize by the Institute for National Security Studies, or the INSS, in Israel. It's the Israel's preeminent national security think tank. Uh, Chuck is now about to complete a new book on the fundamentals of, his, of Israeli national security strategy and the need for a broad-ranging reassessment. He's, he also began to co-author a book on Israel and the threat of cyber war warfare. Chuck's primary area of expertise are the Middle East, U.S. Middle East policy and Israeli national security policy. He teaches political science at Harvard, NYU, Columbia, and the IDC in Herzliya, Israel. He lives in Netanya in Israel and spends the spring semester every year in the United States uh, teaching. He's appeared as a commentator internationally around the world on television such as ABC, CNN, NPR, Al Jazeera, and other US, Israeli, and foreign radio and television stations. He's been quoted in the, in the New York Times and other major media outlets. He's published many articles and op-eds on a variety of issues dealing with the Middle East. Chuck was a senior analyst with the Israeli Ministry of Defense, a policy advisor to a cabinet minister, a delegate to the Israeli mission at the United Nations, and the executive dire director of two nonprofit organizations. He served in the ID IDF, the Israel Defense Forces, for five years in a reserve, as a reserve major. Chuck earned his PhD from Columbia University. He was born in New York and migrated to Israel when he was a teenager. He has two grown children, uh, Lior and Tal. And I've had the privilege to uh, hear Chuck uh, several times at ISGAP and in other venues, and it's really an honor that you're here again. So, welcome. Good evening, everyone. It's a pleasure to be here. Let me start off by asking, how many people would really like to hear an optimistic and uplifting talk about the Middle East today? Let, let me see. Yeah, well, so would I. So you're in the wrong place. Can you use the microphone? Thank you. As you know, we had the elections just a few weeks ago in Israel and are waiting for Prime Minister Netanyahu to form a new government. And this reminds me of the story that made the rounds in Israel a few years ago after one of the previous rounds of elections. And the story is some guy comes up to the prime minister's residence in Jerusalem and knocks on the door and the prime minister's wife answers. And he says, hi, I'd like to see the prime minister, please. He says, well, you know, it's the transition. He's not really the prime minister anymore. In any event, he's not home. The guy says, thank you very much, walks away. Fifteen minutes later, the same guy comes back and knocks on the door. Hi, I'd like to see the prime minister, please. So I told you before, he's not really the prime minister anymore. And in any event, he's not home. Thank you very much, walks away. 15 minutes later, the same guy comes like, hi, I'd like to see the prime minister, please. He says, tell me, what, are you stupid? Don't you understand? He's not the prime minister anymore. He says, I understand. It's just so good to hear it. 
<laughs> now you'll notice you'll notice I didn't mention names, so you can you can fill in the blanks. Unfortunately, the rest of the topic is not nearly as humorous. As a matter of fact, it's hard to think of anything more serious. Because we speak of Iran as presenting an existential threat to the state of Israel 70 years after the Holocaust. I think it's a sad statement of our times that there is a need for an organization like ISGAP, which does wonderful work, and Charles is to be more than commended for that. But it's a sad commentary that there's a need for it. And that at least until a year or so ago, there was a leader of a major state calling for the extermination of another state. So it's a big issue. The United States defines Iran as a strategic threat and a threat to international security. I want to address five questions tonight. First of all, why does Iran want a nuclear weapon? Why have they been pursuing a nuclear weapon? And you have to understand the adversary's motivations if you want to know how to deal with them. A second question I would ask is, why do we have this deep enmity between Iran and Israel? Third question, what are the ramifications for the international community of Iran going nuclear? The fourth question is, what are the ramifications for Israel? And the fifth and final question is, what, if anything, can we do about it? And I'll, of course, talk about the emerging deal and some other options. So let me start with the first question. Why does Iran seem to want a nuclear capability, a military capability? And they've expended enormous resources to achieve it, financial and diplomatic. They've been willing to place themselves in the position of being a pariah state in order to achieve this capability. And let me maybe preface my remarks by saying, even if a deal is signed now, and that still remains a question, I don't believe that Iran is giving up on its long-term ambition to achieve a military nuclear capability. They're postponing it for the future when the circumstances are more propitious. And the truth is they could have had the deal, a capability if they'd wanted it about five years ago. And the price in terms of the international reaction was simply too heavy. And they seem to have come to the conclusion that isn't, this isn't the time to do it. The sanctions are too biting and there's a danger even of military action. And so Iran has time. If it takes another 10, 15 years, that's okay. No one's going anywhere. And if and when the circumstances present themselves, then they can break out. But we have to be frank and understand that Iran actually has very good reasons for wanting a military nuclear capability. Very good reasons. They look with great fear at the United States. That's probably their greatest motivation for wanting a nuclear capability. The United States is the only country which could potentially topple the Iranian regime. The Iranian regime, the Islamic Republic, defines itself as the embodiment of the divine word on earth. Now, that's a mouthful. So if you're against this regime, you're against God. 
the United States toppled two of their neighboring regimes in the space of two years. Taliban in Afghanistan, Iran, uh, Saddam in Iraq. The Bush administration was talking about a regime change in Iran. And had things gone better in Iraq, it probably would have tried to do that. And there is still congressional legislation on the books to this day that speaks of regime change in Iran as being the objective of the United States government. Now, Obama talks a different game and has from the time he was elected. He doesn't speak about regime change. On the other hand, he imposed extraordinarily painful uh, sanctions on Iran, the most painful sanctions regime ever imposed. And he's only going to be around for another 23 months. And from the Iranian point of view, is who are the Americans going to elect next time? You can't trust them. It could be, by chance, another Bush. It might be a Clinton. So they look at the US with great fear. And when they look around them, they see many US allies. And they see lots of US forces. The US built an entire system of bases in the Mideast designed precisely for Iran and, in the past, Iraq. So their biggest fear and the biggest motivation for their nuclear pro program is probably fear of the United States. In the past, Iraq was the primary motivation. This program goes back to the days of the Shah. They fought a horrifically bloody eight-year-long war with Iraq in the 1980s. Most of us have long forgotten that war. The Iranians haven't. They lost close to a half a million people in those eight years. Let me repeat that, a half a million people in eight years, because I'm going to come back to that later. They have a huge national trauma to this day over that war. There are memorials all over the country. They hold ceremonies all over the country. I, for obvious reasons, haven't been there and haven't seen it, but people who've been there say, in some ways, it reminds them of another country which holds lots of memorials. Talking about Israel and the Shoah, the Holocaust. I'm not comparing the two events, but the way it is commemorated. It's a deep national trauma, and we have to remember that. Iraq presents no threat to them today, other than maybe its weakness. But who knows, if, if Iraq even survives as a nation, then 10 or 15 or 20 years from now, it could once again become a threat to Iran. Countries prepare for the long term. In third place, I would probably put Pakistan. They have a, the Iranians have a rather unstable neighbor on their border, and an unstable neighbor with a very large nuclear capability. Now, there's no particular problem in their bilateral relationship. It's not terribly good, but it's not bad. No one likes to have nukes on their border. Israel is probably in fourth place. I'll come back to Israel in a minute. They've also got a number of other reasons for wanting a nuclear capability. They've turned it into a national cause celeb. They've convinced the entire Iranian public that this is a legitimate civilian power program, and the evil outside world, especially the evil United States, is trying to deprive them, to deprive them of a legitimate right. But it's become a national cause celeb. It is supported across the board. To compromise on it in any significant way would mean a huge loss of face for the regime. It would mean admitting that they've been lying all these years. 
They also look at a couple of precedents that we have to understand. They look at Saddam. Saddam thumbed his nose in, in, at the United States in 1991. People don't usually do that, don't usually live to fight a second time. Another day, he did. He had the stupidity to thumb his nose at the United States a second time before getting nukes. And yes, it turned out that the Iraqis did not have WMD in 2003, but they sure as hell did in 1991. And they probably would have had them in 2003 had it not been for the sanctions regime and the inspections regime. But he made the mistake of going too far before he had nukes. The North Koreans, they've been thumbing their nose at the US for decades, but they didn't go that far. They didn't cross the threshold of American ability to stomach it. They waited till they got their nukes. Now they can do whatever they want because they bought immunity. Nobody can touch them. Gaddafi made a mistake. He had a program underway, but he got so scared in 2003 that he was next on the American hit list. Everybody in the Middle East got kind of paranoid in 2003, that he agreed to give him up. And then in 2011, when his regime was tottering, the US was happy to join with other countries and bomb. If he had had the nukes, nobody would have touched him. So the Iranians believe that they have to buy a guarantee for their regime and for their national security. To get them to give this up is actually proven impossible because that's not what anyone's talking about at the moment. The deal isn't a deal about giving it up, it's a deal about rolling back a little bit because the administration came to the conclusion that giving it up is not an attainable objective. The second question was why do we have this deep enmity between Iran and Israel? Now remember, these are countries that are 1,300 kilometers apart. That's 800 and something miles apart. So they have no common border. That means there's no common territory to fight about. That means there's no common population groups to fight about, no resources to fight about. None of the classic components of a international rivalry exist here. So why? And I have to say, I think this is one case where really the explanation is a one-sided one. I wouldn't say this about other issues. And other issues, Israel has its own positions, its own agenda. In this case, Iran, I believe, has a theological commitment to Israel's destruction, and they mean it, and it's a long-term objective. They also use Israel as an entree to the Arab world because they want to become a regional leader. They want to lead the Arab countries in the battle against Israel. So it also has a utilitarian uh, use from their point of view. And I think Israel's one great strategic objective vis-a-vis -vis Iran is to be left alone. You guys are very far away. If we can't be friends as we were in the past under the Shah, at least leave us alone. Since that's not Iran's policy, Hezbollah, Hamas, other organizations. Of course, Israel has a variety of other demands as well, or interests as well. Basically, what Israel wants here is to be left alone. Question number three. What does it mean for the international community if Iran goes nuclear? Well, first of all, there has been a decades-long international effort led by the United States to prevent the proliferation of nuclear weapons throughout the world, and it's actually been an extraordinarily successful effort. President Kennedy, speaking in the early 60s, uh, forecast that by today there would be dozens of countries in the world with nuclear weapons, and he turned out to be very wrong. Because there were the same original five 
that were there at the time, plus three and a half. Pakistan, India, North Korea, and Israel is thought to be, but hasn't declared. No one else. An international norm, a total no-no has developed. You may not use nuclear weapons and you may not acquire them. And the international community has come down very heavily on those who've tried. Not always successfully. Some almost got away with it. The Iraqis would have gotten away with it had it not been for American military intervention. The Syrians had a program. Israel apparently bonded. Libya had a program. The U.S. got them to give it up. The end result, though, is almost no one has crossed the threshold. If Iran crosses the threshold today after North Korea did get away with it, we can pretty much say goodbye to the NPT, the Non-Proliferation Treaty, to the international effort to prevent the proliferation of nuclear weapons. It's not the total end. People will still continue, but it will really be a severe blow. Secondly, if Iran crosses the threshold, there are a number of other, nuclear, uh, other Middle Eastern states which may go nuclear as well. First of all, Saudi Arabia, maybe Egypt down the line, Turkey down the line, possibly some others. The only ones who could do it in, in a short period would be the Saudis because they've got the money to buy a turnkey capability. Uh, but they could do it in a five to 10 year period. The Egyptians and Turks could do it in a 10 to 20 year period. That's not very long in history. Now imagine what a multi-nuclear Middle East looks like, and I submit to you that this is a nightmare that no one has the vaguest idea how to deal with. Remember, the United States and the Soviet Union went to enormous efforts, to great lengths, to make sure that they never reached the nuclear threshold. They had all sorts of channels of communication. They always had uh, ambassadors. They had military attaches. And when they were afraid that that wasn't enough, a hotline was established so that the, the president and the chairman could speak instantaneously. And there were numerous other channels of communication. Now look at the Middle East. First of all, Iran calls for Israel's destruction. The U.S. and Soviet Union never wanted to destroy each other. They wanted to defeat each other militarily, possibly, or certainly politically and economically. They didn't want to wipe out the other side. Iran wants, it declares that it's for Israel's destruction. But Iran doesn't talk to Israel. Iran and Saudi Arabia basically or hardly talk. Iran and Egypt hardly talk. Saudi Arabia, Arabia and Egypt talk, but not very much. Iran and Turkey talk, not great shakes. Egypt and Turkey barely talk whatsoever. Turkey doesn't talk very much to Israel anymore. Egypt's at peace with Israel, but doesn't talk to Israel. Egyptian-Turkish relations are terrible. Egyptian-Saudi relations are civil, but that's about it. And if I missed one of the combinations, fill in the blanks. Now, how do you manage this crisis when you have maybe minutes to do it? And even if you have hours or days when people refuse to speak to each other, when people want to destroy each other. There's another difference from the U.S.-Soviet balance or the Pakistani-Indian nuclear balance. Iran believes that it has God on its side. 
Now, I, by the way, think that the Iranians are rational actors. I think they're extremists, but I think they're rational. I don't know exactly what rationality means when you believe that your regime is divinely inspired and that the supreme leader has a direct line. I'm not saying that they would ever act irrationally. I'm saying it introduces a measure of uncertainty that did not exist there in the US-Soviet case or does not exist today in the Indian-Pakistani case. So how do you handle a multi-nuclear Mideast? I don't know. There's a question if Iran goes nuclear, what does it mean for the international community and what does it mean for the United States as the leader of the international community to have the world's energy sources under a potential Iranian nuclear threat? What does it mean for Israel? Well, first of all, there are, I would say, two schools of thought on this in Israel. And this is my own analytical division. They're not formal schools of thought. There's one school which says a nuclear Iran is literally an existential threat to the state of Israel in the most narrow, narrow sense of the word. That if Iran gets a nuke, sooner or later they will use it. Maybe not tomorrow, but sooner or later they're going to use it. And if you adapt that approach, the logical conclusion is that the state of Israel must do everything in its power, everything to prevent it, because no matter how bad an option that is, all, it's better than the alternative. You, you must prevent it, because allowing Iran to go nuclear is, in that ca case, unacceptable. The other school of thought says it's probably not existential. It's just dire. Now, dire threats are bare enough, bad enough. The difference is that you then have to do everything within reason, not everything possible. That gives Israel a little more freedom of maneuver. The assumption is here that if in the second school is that Iran probably won't ever actually use it. The real threat is in the influence that it will give Iran in a variety of future sub-nuclear options, uh, scenarios. Such as, let's say there's another war with Syria down the line, if Syria is still a state, or let's say with Hezbollah, that's more likely. And at a critical point in the conflict, the Iranians intervene and say, hey, wait a minute, remember, we're here and we have, and they don't even have to say it explicitly. The minute someone even hints at a nuclear capability, you're now in a totally different ballpark because it has now become potentially existential. It's no longer a local skirmish, even a very painful local skirmish. It's now potentially existential. Now that is a bad enough scenario, but again, that scenario or that school of thought gives Israel a little bit more freedom of maneuver. And what's at the essence of the difference between these two schools of thought is the question of Iranian rationality. The people in the second school attribute a greater probability that the Iranians really are rational actors, although they themselves will immediately acknowledge that they can be wrong about that. And that's why Israel has to treat it as if it's an existential threat, even if it may not be. It's bad enough. And the fifth question was, well, what can we do about it? And I'm going to quickly rattle off a few of the other options before talking about the deal now. And if you want me to come back and talk about these options in greater length, I'll do it in the Q&A. The primary alternative to a negotiated deal today is a military option. 
And without going into the details, the problem with the military option is even if you're completely successful, you destroy every installation to the ground. And by the way, the U.S. can do this in a matter of hours. This is not a big operation for the United States. It's a, a little operation for the United States. And don't listen to what you read in the press and to what various politicians are telling you. There are consequences to the action afterward. The military operation itself is nothing for the United States. And Israel can probably do it as well. Not clear because there's this one facility that the Iranians deeply built inside the middle of a mountain called the Fordo installation. That one may or may not be beyond Israel's capabilities. It's certainly not beyond American capabilities. The U.S. built this enormous bunker, bunker buster that Israel doesn't have, an enormous bunker buster which can blow up an entire mountain. The question isn't whether this can be done. It can be done. The problem is that you do it, what have you achieved? You've probably gotten a three to four year time gain because the Iranians can rebuild. They have the know-how today. That's the problem. You can't blow up the know-how. Some people tell you you're only going to gain a year or a year plus. I think they're assuming that the Iranians start working the second the bombing attack ends. Uh, every employee and, uh, arrives on time for work. Every shipment of whatever arrives on time. They don't run into any developmental problems along the way. Everybody knows big infrastructure pro programs always take longer than they can technologically, theoretically. Maybe those who are saying five years of being optimistic, yeah, I think you can get three to four. And nobody's going to sit back on their laurels during these three to four years either. All the other things that we've done and can do, whether it's more sanctions and it's more sabotage or whatever, can be done to extend this period. So maybe the three to four will actually become five or six or ten. Who knows? And some people argue, well, it'll give the Iranians a motivation now to really break out. That's one possibility. And I think that would be their initial reaction. The second they're hit, they'll want to strike, strike back at revenge. So they'll say, oh, yes, we're going to do it. On second thought, they may decide, actually, it's not so wise because whoever did it would probably threaten that we'll do it again, if necessary. The point is, you're, it's a temporary gain. And if all you can do is get a temporary gain, then maybe there are other ways of temporarily gaining time, such as the deal that's on the table at the moment. The military option can buy time. It doesn't solve the problem. That, by the way, is true of all the other options as well. We can go back to sanctions. That's what the president has said he will do if a deal is not signed. I find that a rather unsatisfactory outcome if after 20 years of the international effort, he, the, the president of the United States finally got the Europeans on board for really cutting international sanctions in 2012. If the Iranians say no now, then why should more sanctions get them to say yes? If they're willing to pay the price, if they're willing to say bring it on, then why should we anticipate that they're going to change their position. We can try the sabotage route. And if you read the New York Times, Israel and the United States together have tried to do that for years. And there was at least one very successful effort. To do that even once is a case of intelligence brilliance, genius. Because the Iranians knew that somebody was going to try and do this to them. Any child in, in the first grade of counterintelligence of developing secret installations know that the other side is going to try and sabotage it. And if they didn't know it, and they did, because the Iranians are very smart people, 
David Ignatius of the Washington Post wrote a great novel a few years ago, a spy novel, saying almost exactly what happened with uh, Stuxnet afterwards. It's amazing how close his novel was, and it preceded Stuxnet by, I don't know, five years. So to do that a second time is really almost impossible. It's almost impossible the first time. Now it's almost unimaginable. People have spoken about re regime change in Iran, which is fine, but everybody's been talking about that just since the Islamic Republic was born in 1971, and we're no closer to it today than we were, 1979, we're no closer today than we were at the time. There's no signs of instability, of any danger to the regime in Iran today. Could happen a year from now, it could have happen 20 years from now, it might not happen at all. And if it happens, it's gonna happen, I believe, because of changes within Iran itself by the Iranian people. It's not gonna be instigated by anyone on the outside. So that's probably not gonna help either. And so we come back now to the option of a negotiated deal. We don't yet know that there is a deal. This was a framework agreement which is supposed to lead by June 30th to a final deal. There are at least three or more, but there are three major issues that remain unresolved. Actually, three of, not, not the three biggest, but three of the biggest issues. The nature of the sanctions regime, of the future of the sanctions regime, the nature of the inspections regime, and what's called the PMDs, the possible military dimensions. In other words, whether Iran lied or not, or we want you to disclose what you did in the past. It's not by chance that these were the three issues that were left for the end. The Iranians weren't willing to compromise on them because these are the biggest ones for them. And so we may not reach a deal. I would say it's more likely than not that we will. And one of the possibilities or one of the concerns is that the administration, in its desire to reach an agreement, may make too many concessions at this point. I define this as a good-bad deal, what we seem to know as the emerging deal. A good-bad deal. What does that mean? Well, it's a bad deal in the sense that Iran will retain much of its nuclear infrastructure intact. It's good. It has to roll it back. But much of it will remain intact, and at the end of the 10 to 15 year period in which they're subject to various limitations, the president said, himself said they can, they can go back in a, almost overnight to where they were today. It'll take them a few months. That's assuming that they haven't done other things that they shouldn't be doing in the meantime. It's a bad deal because we don't have the answers to, yet at least, then what could happen with inspections, uh, sanctions, etc. And it looks like sanctions will be lifted very, very quickly. Prime Minister Netanyahu has come out very strongly against this deal. That's no secret. Actually, he came out very strongly against the interim deal a year and a half ago. And that's where the real problem lies, because this is an outgrowth of that deal at the time. His argument really was that if the, if the administration, if the U.S. had just been willing to hold out for another few months, that Iran was on the ropes and they were about to capitulate, that the U.S. tried to compromise too quickly in just, just a few more months and the Iranians would have caved. Now, if the prime minister is right, then this deal is not just a bad deal, it's a historic error. 
The administration maintains that, well, that was nice to have, and the specifics of what Netanyahu was saying, it said, yeah, we were all for that also. We wanted to dismantle the program completely. We could not achieve that. So that the question wasn't dismantle or nothing, it was whether we can live with some sort of compromise deal, whether this compromise deal is better than no deal at all. And that's what the administration is saying today. The, the president isn't saying this is the best deal we could have had. It's not saying this is what I wanted to achieve. He's saying this is what I can achieve. And I said the bad thing is, uh, there are lots of bad things here, but the really bad one is that Iran will retain their capability at the end of the 10 to 15 year period and they can go back to doing bad things. The good news is that it would be very, 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 almost impossible for them to, to break out from the known, I stress, the known nuclear sites during this 10 to 15 year period. That doesn't mean that they can't sneak out from the unknown sites, if there are, if there are secret sites. But if there are secret sites, we don't know about them today either. So the agreement doesn't really matter too much from that point of view. It actually improves things because there will be and the final details, again, remain to be negotiated, but the Iranians have already agreed to what's called the additional protocol to the inspections regime that the, the IAEA, the International Atomic Energy Agency, always does. They have already agreed, at least in principle, to the most in intrusive inspections regime ever. So it'll even be much harder for them to go the sneak out route. We have gained, we've probably succeeded in postponing the Iranian threat, a potentially existential threat to Israel for 10 to 15 years. And that's a good thing. Israel's approach to national security, its national security doctrine has always been based not on the belief that Israel could ever solve problems, but it's always a matter of gaining time, playing for time. The repeated rounds with, uh, with Hezbollah, with Hamas, have never been to defeat them. It was always to gain time, hopefully longer. These rounds haven't bought that much time. But the objective was always just play for time. Because Arab enmity towards Israel is so fundamental that we can't get them to forego their aspirations. At least we can get them to change their behavior temporarily. Well, if we can force Iran to postpone its motivations, its aspirations for at least 10, 15 years, we've done something. And we'll handle the problem 10 years from now, 15 years from now. The question is whether there's anything fundamentally different that we can do today that we won't be able to do 10 or 15 years from now. Well, one thing is we will not have an international sanctions inspections regime in place. We'll be starting almost from scratch 10 to 15 years from now, and that's much worse. But if the Iranians want to break out at the time, presumably the United States will be as against that at the time as the United States is today. The United States has always been against nuclear proliferation. <coughs> I don't know that there's anything different militarily between what we can do today and then. Certainly there's no difference what the United States can do. Maybe for Israel, yes. Not for the United States. So I say this is a bad, good deal, because the question is, what are the alternatives? We're going to have to manage this conflict because we're not solving it. Israel hasn't solved the, the conflict with the Palestinians either. We just manage it. Most of what Israel does, most of what the United States does in its national security is crisis management, not crisis solution, resolution. It's a tough world we live in today. Wars don't end in victory like they once did.
problem will continue for the long term. And let me conclude on a more positive note, because uh, some of you may be somewhat depressed at this point. Today we're celebrating Israel's 67th year of independence. And that's a pretty remarkable achievement. Who would have believed it a few decades ago that there would be a Jewish state again, that we'd still be there 67 years later, a nation which was thriving economically. The whole world went through a major economic downturn in recent years. Israel sailed through it almost without effect that will become to be known as the high-tech nation, the second largest center of high-tech activity in the world after the United States, and the U.S. is just a little bit bigger than Israel. And there are a couple of other countries out there, small, unimportant countries, China, Britain, France, Germany, who don't begin to compete with Israel in the, in the area of high-tech creativity. And if people know that one, maybe not quite as many people know that Israel is an equally marvelous center of cultural activity. Israel, I mean, it's just the whole country is bubbling with creative energy. It's quite remarkable. Ben-Gurion once said that if and when Israel had a Jewish population of 5 million people, its security would be assured. Well, we now have 6.1 million. We've taken in immigrants, Aliyah, gathering of the, in, of the exiles for decades very successfully. And I would submit that um, despite some big problems that we still have, first of all with the Palestinians and with Hezbollah, Hezbollah's got a rocket arsenal of 100,000 rockets. This is monstrous. But there's a really big difference. None of the military threats that we face today are existential threats. Israel doesn't face a single conventional existential threat today. The Arab countries are in a state of shambles. And if the nuclear issue with Iran is postponed by a decade or more, then there's no existential threat from Iran for the meantime. To say that we don't face an existential threat, well, in any other country, people would say, what's the big deal? For Israel, that's a very big deal. It means that our security is assured. And it will be 10 or 15 years from now if Iran goes nuclear as well. No one can destroy Israel today. As a nation, we have some pretty good reasons for being worried, for being paranoid. We'd use the word existential more than any other people in the world for a very good reason. But the good news is that after 67 years, we don't really have to worry about it anymore. And that's an, more, an enormous change. So I would say today, uh, this is actually a little bit, I guess my remarks end a little bit like the switch over from Yom Zikaron, Memorial Day yesterday, to Yom Ha'atzmaut, Independence Day. Israel goes, it's an absolutely schizophrenic process from deep depression, and Memorial Day in Israel culminates the week that starts with Yom HaShoah, with Holocaust Day. And in a matter of hours, we flip the switch and go and swing happy, and sing happy songs and dance in the streets in honor of 67 years of independence. So thank you. Let me take your cue and your questions.
just start with uh, my question. First of all, thank you very much for your overview. Um, in terms of ideology, the Iranian revolutionary regime cannot accept the self-determination of non-practicing Muslims in the region, and the Jews are the only non-practicing Muslims, non-practicing Muslims in the area with self-determination. So Israel needs to be obliterated. Uh, the Muslim Brotherhood and other Islamist organizations have the same belief. The Obama administration, the most powerful country in the world, has engaged, has been engaging radical political Islam all over the world, starting in the Cairo speech where he, he invited the Muslim Brotherhood to sit in the front rows to engage in the Iranian revolutionary regime. So my question is, the nuclear issue is a very serious issue, but my question is, what are the implications of the United States of America engaging a regime that thinks that you and I emanate from monkeys and pigs and urine of donkeys? That this type of brutal, vicious anti-Semitism, genocidal anti-Semitism, is something that the State Department won't even discuss it. They get annoyed by people to bring it up. What are the implications globally for allowing this type of anti-Semitism to flourish from the Middle East to the streets of Paris, and while Christians and Yazdis and women and gay people are being brutally murdered from, from Nigeria through to Syria and Iraq. What are, so there's this nuclear issue, but what, what are the implications for, for Israel's security and, for, and, and forget even Israel is important, but also basic notions of human rights and human dignity globally. What, what is going on? And what are the implications of this atmosphere that we've now uh, entered very deeply into globally? Okay, well, Charles started off with <laughs> the toughest kind of question. Look, first of all, let me say, oh, I was, I was asked to repeat the questions for the purpose of the TV uh, camera. Uh, that's a hard question to summarize. But what it comes down to is, I think that, well, two things. One is that Iran spouts a vicious, venomous, anti-Semitic uh, rhetoric. And the other, the way the Obama administration, and not just the United States, are handling the rise of Islamism and uh, Islamic anti-Semitism generally. I started off by saying that it's a sad commentary on life that we have to talk about anti-Semitism 70 years after the Holocaust and that there's a need for organizations such as ISGAP. There is. I think that the nuclear issue is so overwhelmingly important because it's the only one of Iran's many misdeeds that is potentially existential. And I say that if we can put that issue aside for the next decade or so, in the spirit of Pesach, Dayenu. That's enough. And so I think that issue should be separated, should be delinked from all of Iran's other misdeeds. And now we have a decade. Let's try and deal with them. Let's see if there is any basis to the school of thought. It's actually a hope that the president voiced. He didn't voice this as a, an, a forecast, 
but as a hope. He was very careful to make it clear, a hope that Iran will change its behavior in the next decade or so. That may not happen. I would say it's more likely that it will not happen than it will happen. The question is whether the dangers in pursuing that option are too great. I think they're not. I think they're manageable. The rise of Islamist hatred or anti-Semitism is something that we can't really do very much about. Uh, we could be, we as in the United States, could be responding to it differently. I don't think that would make a fundamental difference on the ground. I think it would make a fundamental difference in the, in the sense that the United States should be standing up for its principles here. And I think that maybe this is one of a number of areas in which the Obama administration could have handled and could be handling this issue differently today. For example, if I had been conducting the negotiations, if I had had that opportunity, I'd have done it very differently. I would have had two American aircraft carriers in the Persian Gulf. I'd have had American forces conducting military exercises throughout the Mideast. I'd have had the Pentagon leaking all sorts of fancy new equipment, a threat of imminent military action and a threat of really severe sanctions. Well, Obama didn't do that. And in the way that he took the military option off the table by mistake, I think he's taken some of the tough diplomatic talk option off the table. Maybe the only thing you can say in the administration's favor on that level is that maybe in the last couple of months when they were trying to negotiate a deal, that wasn't the time to do it, but they should be coming back to it soon. I, I agree completely. I certainly agree with the last sentence. I disagree with most of what you said before that. Uh, yeah, the question was, uh, why did I belittle the economic difficulties in Israel when in reality the question was saying people are still having a very hard time, people are suffering, having a hard time getting jobs, so people are leaving the country, uh, and just generally a hard time with the cost of living. There is definitely a problem of cost of living. That's absolutely true. Uh, first of all, in housing and in a whole variety of other areas. As a matter of fact, it's utterly outrageous that you can buy Israeli products often cheaper abroad than in Israel. It's a small economy with a number of monopolies and, and in any event, major uh, manufacturers, and they take advantage of a small economy. And nothing that I will say is to take away from the fact that there is a part of Israel that is really struggling, and it's a substantial part. It's not the middle and upper class that you're talking about. It's middle class. I said middle. You said middle. I'm adding up. It's not so much the middle class. They're struggling. But it's the less than middle class which really still lives a life of austerity in many cases. The middle class is struggling, but what are they struggling for? They're struggling for a big apartment in Greater Tel Aviv. They're struggling for a second car. 
They're struggling to be able to go abroad on trips. They're struggling for a lot of things. Well, I think that's the reality. And if you look at, you have the right to disagree completely. If you look at the statistics, Israel today actually has a mid-European standard of living. We actually passed France in per capita GDP a couple of years ago and are a year or two away from Britain. We're still far away from Germany and the Nordic countries. We're way above the southern European countries. So part of it isn't objective economic straits, it's subjective perception, the way people feel. Most people aren't going abroad because they can't get a job in Israel. It's because there are, the United States is a bigger country. It's a world leader. There are opportunities here that do, don't exist in Israel. Israel has the great benefit and the great problem of being a place of an incredible concentration of talent. It's really hard for talented people. There, there are a lot of talented people competing for a few slots. That's what's leading people to go abroad. Um, and I would say that the, the real situation is much, much better than the, the way people feel. Um, yeah, I um, sort of have a two-part question. One, um, what about the SP-100 system that um, Russia is mm -hmm. selling to Iran right now? And of course, we're probably giving Iran $50 billion so they can afford the $800 billion defense system. Is, is that a direct, um, is the SP-100 um, anti-missile system a direct existential threat to Israel, my tendency is to believe yes, because Israel and the United States, from my understanding, then would not have a chance to be able to take out nuclear facilities in the event that Iran does a sneak breakout. And then my other question is, um, let's say that I became president when Obama's term is up, I'm president. And I have a very pro-Western, pro-American, and I'm very passionate about Israel's right to exist. And so I come to you on my first day of my presidency, and I say, okay, you're the prime minister. I say, okay, what is it that we can do? What is it you would like the United States to help you do in order to make the Middle East safe for Israel, to make that part of the world more stable? so that both the United States, Israel, and the Western world are safer. What would you like me to do to help you help make the, I guess to put it succinctly, make the, United, make the Middle East more stable and so that the world can be a safer place? What would you like me to do as president of the United States? Okay. And I think there was one, but those are the two main questions. I okay. The first question was, what about the uh, deal for the sale of the Russian S-300 to Iran? And that as part of the emerging American deal with Iran, we're, we're giving them $50 billion. First of all, the S-300 deal hasn't been finalized yet. Or it may have been finalized. This deal has been finalized around 10 times in the last half dozen years. And somehow, every time it's finalized, it turns out that it wasn't partly because both the U.S. and Israel made a personal appeal to Putin not to do it. Uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu met with him personally, and at least until now, Putin has observed that promise that he made. That may change now. I won't be surprised if it doesn't. I won't be surprised if it does. If it does change. Now, if it's sold, if it's actually provided to Iran, this is definitely a significant change for the worse. 
And let me just say to you that for every system, there's a counter system. For every system, and this is just another air defense system. It's been around for a while. Uh, Israel's been training a lot in recent years with the uh, Greek Air Force because by chance some S-300s were deployed in, um, not in Rhodes, in, um, no, not in Cyprus. Uh, Concrete a few years ago. If we have to take care of the S-300, we'll take care of the S-300. Makes life harder, no doubt about it. But it's just an air defense system. It's not an existential threat. It's not an offensive weapon. It just makes life harder. As to giving them 50 billion, there is a cost to a deal. And this is one of the costs. You can also say, that if Iran now is back as part of the international community, there's money flowing in, there's Iranians going abroad, there are people coming to Iran, that this may create an interest in Iran for continuing this situation. Once you have money flowing in, it's really hard to give it up. So it's a mixed issue, and this whole deal, if it's signed, is a calculated risk. That's all it is. I can't tell you it's a great deal. I can tell you that it has some good sides and some bad sides. So Israel wouldn't necessarily, I mean, as the defense system is, you know, en route to Iran, Israel wouldn't just go in and maybe take it out so that it Israel will decide for itself what it's going to yeah. do. The second question you asked is what can the new president do to make the Middle East a safer place and a safer place for Israel? That's a big question. Uh, I was about to say, I don't know that anyone, I'll say differently, I don't think anyone knows, to do, knows what to do about the Mideast today. The Mideast is coming apart at the seams and there are no good solutions. So let me just say a couple of things. I hope that the next president will be a good friend of Israel, will continue providing Israel with the military uh, support it needs. I hope that he will help us achieve a peace agreement that is on appropriate terms and American efforts to promote Arab or Palestinian-Israeli peace are not anti-Israeli. I think they're very pro-Israeli. I think he'll help us deal with, especially with the Hezbollah threat. Hezbollah is now beginning to deploy on the Syrian border, and that's a huge threat. I hope that if a deal is signed, that the next president will help make sure that Iran observes it and that the other Arab countries in the region do not go nuclear as a result, and that means dealing with with their concerns vis-a-vis -vis Iran and providing them with some sort of security guarantees. And I hope he will take care of Israel's security needs in that regard as well. In, in your very comprehensive and excellent presentation, you. you were dismissive entirely of the idea of regime change in Iran. And it was based on one idea that has been around for so long since the Islamic Revolution in 79 or whatever. Year, 79. And we hoped that and I couldn't help thinking of the Soviet Union that was around a lot more than, than that, and it suddenly crumbled. And I'm wondering if there's any um, factors you could envision that might bring about regime change with a combination of sanctions and military action, or maybe just the opposite, Iran becoming prosperous and people no longer willing to live. I'm just wondering if it would be so beneficial and so important to have regime change in Iran what would you believe might have that, that effect on the present uh, regime in Iran? So the question was, uh, 
Uh, why was I dismissive of the possibility of regime change in Iran, uh, saying, well, it hasn't happened since, 19, since 1979, why should it happen today, and what could possibly be done to bring it about? I'm not dismissive of the need or desirability for regime change. What I'm saying is that I don't believe that anyone on the outside can foment it. The days when the United States or some other foreign power could intervene in some government, in some country, and overthrow it, overthrow it are really long gone. It's a different world today. Uh, and Iran is a real country. It is a real country with a very rich heritage of which the Iranians are immensely proud. It's a government which, for all its faults, still enjoys reasonably broad public legitimacy. So that I believe, and, and this isn't just some sort of belief of mine, people have been working for decades on trying to think of ways to promote regime change in Iran. No one has yet come up with a viable strategy for doing it. I don't think that we can get the international community, it would be nice, but in reality, I don't think we can get the international community to exert the kind of pressures on Iran that might bring it about, and even that's probably not going to do it. I think there is a process that's taking place in Iran which will ultimately lead to the regime's collapse. Some people say that the Arab Spring actually started with the June 2009 demonstrations in Iran after the elections, when they threw the elections to Ahmadinejad, who actually didn't win. That that was the first outbreak of the Arab Spring. And Iran, for all of the fact that it, it is fundamentally a theocracy, does have some experience with democracy at the same time. It's, it's a weird kind of situation. They do hold elections there. Not fully fair and free, but somewhat. So I think that this will come eventually. I think it's going to come from the Iranian people. I don't think it's way in the distant future, but could it be 10, 20 years? Yes, if it could be five years also. But I think it has to come from within to be realistic. Thank you. Um, I, I totally appreciate your, your talk today. I think it's really comprehensive and, um, and very enlightening. Um, but I, I noticed that there, you're confining your discussion to the Middle East. And um, I, I know that there's a big concern in the international community with ICBMs and whatever, that Iran has uh, a, a view towards going outside of the Middle East, um, into Europe, into, you know, uh, there are launching sites in South America, um, you know, going after, after the great Satan, the United States. So, how does that fit into to this whole picture? Right. The question was, was I presenting too limited a picture and that actually Iran has uh, global aspirations, it wants to attack the United States, maybe has launching sites in South America? Iran doesn't have any launching sites in South America. Let's start with that. And it doesn't yet have ICBMs. It's years away from them if it gets them. And if it gets them, it'll have one or 10 or 20 or 30 or 40. And that's not a threat to the United States. Not really. Because if the Iranians ever used it, Iran wouldn't exist. And these are not, I mean, in colloquial uh, non-English, I mean, they're, they're a bunch of Michigan. They're not crazy. They're really not crazy people. If you look at their behavior over the decades, they're extremists, but they go about their extremist uh, policies in a rather careful, planned, calculated way. 
To think that Iran ever really wants to challenge the United States, I think, is far-fetched. They're on anything but a policy level. I think they're scared stiff of the United States. I think that's why they developed the nukes. I think eventually they will try and get some ICBMs that they could hit the U.S., that they could prevent, present a threat to the United States. But I mean, that's a threat that people in the public get, get concerned about. That's not a real military threat to the future of the United States, to American security. Iran's never going mean, to, let's be realistic, Iran is never going to take on the United States. I hope so. If I'm wrong, I, I probably won't be here to say it, but. Uh. <laughs> this question was there a possibility for the United States to have stood stronger on the eve of those elections? Sort of a public outcry oh. happened? And then, Could uh, the United States have responded more strongly to yeah. what happened in the yeah. Iranian elections in 2009? Exactly. And, but was, you know, is it because we didn't, because we were having this idea about the, this uh, deal? And <clears throat> after that, is um, all this come out about Nisman uh, and Argentina, and that being because Argentina had offered to help develop nuclear weapons and then pulled it back, going back um, 25 years. Is that, I mean, from what you understand, is that true as well? And so is it that it's a violent regime that's been plotting the nuclear plan for a full generation now? Okay, the first question was, uh, was the American response or the Obama administration's response to the 2009 elections in Iran and to the demonstrations that took place, was it as restrained as it was because the President was already contemplating the deal with, with Iran down the line? I think not specifically. Did he have in his mind at the time already that he was trying to bring about a change in the overall relationship with Iran? Absolutely, yes. Did that guide his response at that specific moment? I don't know. Uh, personally, I think his response was much too restrained, and he should have come out more forcefully than he did. Uh, I think at least this was the rationale that the administration or administrators, administration supporters gave at the time was that he didn't want to call on the Iranian people to rise up unless he was willing to intervene to help them, and he wasn't willing to do that, to take that commitment on him. Uh, but I think, I, I think the, the important point here is that you're right that he came in to office with the idea in mind that he was going to try and bring about a fundamental realignment or, or a fundamental change in the relationship with Iran. That's the case. That's true. But I'm certainly not an expert on the Nisman case in Argentina, and I don't want to speak to it, uh, other than to say that there was a, um, a senior uh, commission or a judicial tri tribunal which did not find uh, uh, monkey business here in what happened with him. But I think it's an open issue in Argentina itself, and it's not one that I'm sufficiently well-versed with. Um, two things. Uh, I'm thinking that, and I want to know what you think, this deal kind of cements the Iranian regime as being in because $50 billion, <coughs> relaxing of the sanctions. This is a feather in their cap, you know? Also, who, who do you believe 
Netanyahu or Obama? I mean, Netanyahu seems hysterical over this deal. So, you know, it's a, it's a matter of, I don't know that much about it, but if, if Bibi is so anxious about it, I feel there must be a reason I kind of trust him rather than Obama. I want to know what you think. Okay, two, two questions. The first one was the $50 billion uh, are a feather in Iran's cap, and it will cement the regime. Okay, the regime is in no danger of collapsing to begin with. Okay, let, let's dismiss that idea. The regime is there, it's going to be there for a while, whether it's a longer while or a shorter while has nothing to do with the $50 billion. It will make life nicer for people in Iran. It will strengthen the regime's position, absolutely. For the moment, this is a firmly entrenched regime. So the deal, yes, it will strengthen them, but it's not going to fundamentally change the picture. The second question was who to believe. And I'm not going to answer that question. <laughs> not going to answer it. Uh, I know how to dodge a question also. And this one I'm doing openly. <laughs> All I can say is that I define this as a good-bad deal. No, what's good about it, I said it's good, among other things, it's going to, in all likelihood, almost definitely, postpone a nuclear Iran for 10 to 15 years, and that's pretty good, and that's what Israel, and actually the U.S. also usually do, is postpone problems and manage conflicts. It's rare that we can solve them. And in 10 to 15 years, Iran may change. It probably won't, but it might. No, it's not that so good. Iran is paying a heavy price here. They are rolling back a significant portion of their capability. They are agreeing to submit themselves to an unprecedented inspections regime. They are losing some face here, the fact that they have to back off a little bit in the face of their public. Iran is also paying a price here. This isn't uh, just all the U.S. all around. Both sides are paying a price here. Both sides are gaining something. That's the nature of, the nature of negotiated deals. Okay? If only one side gains from the deal, that's not a negotiated one. That's a dictate. And then the question that you have to ask is, is this a deal that's worth, that's better than the alternatives? The president says yes, and he says, if it turns out that the calculation today was wrong, I can deal with it down the line. Netanyahu is taking a harder line position, for obvious reasons, by the way, because the United States does not face an existential threat. Israel does, so Israel obviously has to take a harder line position. But there are many people in Israel who disagree with the prime minister's line here. If you saw what happened during the elections, this wasn't just over the nuclear issue, but 200 former generals came out against his leadership in general, and, and they were also talking about the way he's dealt with the nuclear issue. So that it's not a black and white picture on either side. And I think you can legitimately say this is a bad deal. You can legitimately say it's a better than the alternatives deal. Life is complicated. Now, someone who didn't ask that. Just three. <laughs> okay, the first thing, going back to Argentina. I understand that Obama had contacted de Kirchner several times over the last few months to drop the case that Nussbaum was bringing with regards to the 
Jewish Community Center bombing. Is that true? And if it is true, then why would Obama tell her to drop the case? What was, what was going to be revealed in the hearings? Second thing, if Iran is that smart, why would they put their ships in the Persian Gulf and then turn them around and go in the opposite direction today? They were. I, I don't know what you're referring to. Maybe it's a report. To, I didn't read today's paper. I yeah. didn't get to it yet. Yeah. They, what was it earlier today? Some Fox News. Yeah. yeah. Oh, uh, Fox News as well. Everything they say is always exactly the way they say it, of course. Well. No, but what, what, were, they, what were they reporting? So why would they send their ships in to, to provoke the United States and then turn them back? Because it, it makes them appear weak. And then... Um, you know what, I'll, ask, I'll answer the first two and maybe it'll come back to you in the meantime. And if not, you can come back to it afterwards. First of all, again, I, I don't want to talk about the Argentinian case because it's not my area of expertise. The question was whether Obama had called Kirchner to ask uh, that they drop the, um, the Nisman case. I have no idea. so. Let me leave it at that. Uh, I don't know about this. The second question was reports today that the Iranians sent uh, ships into the Gulf to provoke the U.S. and then pulled them back. Again, I did not see this report, so I don't know what it refers to. And as administration spokesmen always say, I will not refer to hypotheticals. Uh, look, I'm not, I never said that the Iranians never make mistakes. Of course they do. And they do try and provoke the U.S. at times. What I was trying to say is I don't think they'll ever try to provoke, the, I think they'll always do their very best not to provoke the U.S. to the point of actual conflict. That doesn't mean that there can't be a tiny shooting incident. Uh, they don't want to get into anything of significance with the United States. And I do remember Good. the third question it has to do with the, the, um, uh, the inspectors going in. Iran said yesterday that they were not going to allow the inspectors to go into all areas specifically their military. Okay, so here's one of the real problems in the emerging deal. The question is, Iran says that they will not allow the inspectors into all sites, and specifically the military ones. There's a problem here, and that's why we haven't reached an agreement on this issue yet. No country has ever allowed another country or international inspectors to enter every site in the country. The United States and the Soviet Union and the various disarmament agreements, SALT, START, etc. U.S. never agreed to let the Soviets enter every American site. That's in the Iranians' favor. In American favor, uh, we got to know what they're doing. We have to make sure that they're not doing bad things after this deal is signed. And the question is how you meet those two conflicting needs. And the answer is that, in, again, there's going to be some sort of compromise here. There's a mechanism in the draft agreement, as we know it, which allows those special cases where the Iranians want to say no to come before a uh, commission, if you will, composed of the P5 or the P6 in this case, uh, and Iran uh, for adjudication. And if a deal cannot be re reached there, well, then the U.S. has a problem. Is that 
And that's, I don't think that's a final deal yet either. But is that a great outcome? The answer is no. The Iranians have, however, what is agreed to is that they've said that they will not only sign the additional protocol to the IAEA safeguards agreement, but they've agreed to one or two other things. And that in itself is a more intrusive, intrusive regime than has ever existed anywhere else. So is it quite what we want? The answer is it no. Is it reasonably good? Hopefully, yes. I have a question about the, the peaceful uh, nuclear program. You mentioned that the, the government of Iran has sold its public on the, that it's a peaceful program. So what I'm not clear on is will there be a peaceful uh, Iranian nuclear program during the next 15 year, 10 or 15 years? And if so, would there be tremendous economic benefit to a peaceful nuclear program uh, in Iran? Do they save billions on oil and do they get to produce unlimited electrical power and things like that? Um, sorry, the first part of the question was? That uh, the government has-, has Right, okay. So I, so I had said earlier that the um, Iranian regime has convinced the public that this is a peaceful nuclear program and that the world is trying to deprive them of a legitimate right to a peaceful program. And then the question is, what would they do with a legitimate, with, with a, a, a peaceful, with a power program during the 10 to 15 years of the accord? First of all, let me start with the second half. Iran has, <laughs> believe it or not, they are soon going to face an energy crisis. Their domestic consumption has gone up quite rapidly. Their domestic output has not. And maybe this agreement will save them from it, but if it wasn't for this agreement, within a few years, Iran could end up becoming a net importer of oil. Okay, they have the third largest reserves in the world, but because their production infrastructure is in such bad shape, has been mismanaged so badly, they already were a couple of years ago, and the sanctions gave them some more time, they will be a few years from now in danger of becoming a net importer. So they actually have a need for nuclear power because then they can continue selling world, uh, oil to the world. That's their only source of income, basically. Iran is basically a one item economy. So they actually do have a need for a power program. They convinced the public that it's a uh, civil program. And uh, that's not going to change. There's time for one or two more questions. A couple of times, spoke in terms of the deal, if it is uh, along the terms that have been outlined as producing you know, 10 or 15 years and then things could change, but you didn't address what they refer to as breakout time, number one. Number two, the fact that there will be centrifuges that will still be spinning and possibly the next generation of centrifuges, not just now, <coughs> to enrich uranium, that the byproduct of the uh, peaceful nuclear reactors is also a fissionable material, probably. Plutonium, what I've heard said many times, is that the trick is not in the, uh, uh, the technology of building the bomb. The trick is in being able to enrich enough uranium to be of weapons-grade quality. And I've heard predictions that under the agreement, uh, the breakout time for Iran could be a year or two years. 
So I'm just wondering how, how, it, how it's possible to speak about the agreement almost guaranteeing 10 or 15 years of uh, weapon, nuclear weapons-free uh, Iraq. Right, the question was about the breakout time, how long the Iranians would have under the deal, um, about preventing them from breaking out, what guarantees we have. Today, not at some future date, today Iran is somewhere between, depending on which of the credible experts you want to look at, is between six weeks and three months from having enough fissile material for a first bomb, and they're probably a year and a half away from weaponization. The president argues, the administration's experts argue, that this deal lengthens breakout time to about a year, so it's a, let's say it's a nine-month gain in terms of breakout time. It definitely lengthens it. You can argue whether it's 10, 11, 12, or 14, but it definitely lengthens it. That, there's no debate about that. Then the question is, what are the guarantees? There are no guarantees. There's an inspections regime. And it is the most intrusive inspections regime that there's ever been, if it really happened. There's a cost to Iran for being caught cheating. It's absolutely clear that Iran does not want to go nuclear if it means a confrontation with the international community. Because if they were willing to do that, they could have crossed the threshold five years ago. So the only logical explanation for the fact that they didn't cross it for five years ago, because they had the technological capabilities that they didn't want to pay the price with the international community. If they try to break out, I said before, from the known sites, they will in all likelihood, high probability, they will be caught. Because the inspections are, are too intrusive. They will also have a harder time sneaking out from the unknown sites than they would today. It's still possible. There are no guarantees in life. It'll just be harder. So overall, this deal does make it harder for Iran to go nuclear in the next 10 to 15 years. Last question, I think. It's up to Charles. Um, or the last two questions. Uh, who do you think might be, uh, out of you know, all the players right now, uh, throwing their hat into the ring, the president of the United States might be the best for Israel? Oh, uh, all right. So the question is, who of the different pr potential presidential candidates are best for Israel? And that's another one of those questions that I'm going to dodge. <laughs> <laughs> do you know, though? No. First of all, I don't know. But if I did, I wouldn't address it. I, seriously, I wouldn't. I don't think anyone, a former Israeli official, should say a word about that. And I think uh, we've interfered, intervened in American politics enough recently. So has the United States. Excuse me? So has, so has the United States intervened in Israeli politics. Yeah, but the last time I looked, the U.S. was a little bit bigger than Israel. Oh. <laughs> Just a little bit. And a little bit. And a little bit less dependent on Israel for its national security. So we're in, in, in an asymmetric relationship, and I believe should behave accordingly. Last question for this lady. Yeah, um, I was just, the one principle I always go by um, when I think of Israel is, is in a policy decision that Israel makes is, will this further her existence, guarantee, help guarantee her existence in the future, or will this hinder her? And so to me, it seems like there should be um, absolute zero tolerance policy for terrorism. So the PLO, Arafat, Oslo, 
Gaza, the, the fact that Hezbollah is gathering, is threatening on the Syrian border, the fact, all of that should be addressed from a security standpoint. And, and the whole issue with Iran having nukes. Once again, Israel took those facilities out in two other countries because they was considered an existential threat. Shouldn't, if Israel followed that principle and told the world either get behind it or not, but this is the principle we live by, wouldn't the world be a safer place and Israel would be safer and maybe we wouldn't be having this problem with Iran? There would be no problem with Iran, would be my guess. That's a really interesting question. The question was, well, first of all, there should be an approach of zero tolerance for terrorism, zero, to zero tolerance for uh, nuclear weapons, and maybe Israel should say to the world, look, either get serious, handle this, or we're going to do it. Wouldn't the world be a safer place? First of all, it's an interesting question. I think that Pres uh, Pr uh, Premier Netanyahu deserves a great deal of credit for having taken something of that kind of approach in years past. And I think the reason that the US and Europe, or that Europe finally joined the US in getting serious about the Iranian nuclear issue in 2012 and imposed very, very painful concessions was for two reasons. One is they started sincerely becoming concerned about the Iranian capability. The other reason, unfortunately, is that they were at least as concerned about a possible Israeli strike as they were about the Iranian nuclear program. In effect, what Netanyahu said in, for a couple of years before 2012 and a year or two after that was exactly what you're saying. He says, guys, you do it, because if not, we're going to do it. And that threat forced the international community to get serious. Um, I think he overplayed his cards in recent months. But um, the he approach- He overplayed because he didn't follow through? Because I think he misplayed his card. But uh, that doesn't mean that Israel doesn't have that role down the line. Because even assuming that the deal is finalized, it now has to be implemented, and it has to be implemented faithfully. Israel's going to have a big role in assessing whether the Iranians are doing it faithfully or not, and in alerting the world and in pushing the world to deal with it if it isn't faithful, and then again potentially doing exactly what you're saying. Guys, deal with it, or we may have to. Thank you very much.